going to be beginning our winter sermon series on the life of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Um, If you'd like to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 25, that's where we'll be today. It's on page 19 of your pew Bible. It's the first book in the Bible. And in your bulletin, don't read this right now, but in your bulletin on page 6, we're going to look at this later, we have a little teaser about the sermon series. And if you read this later, you should ask if there's ways you should be praying for fellow church members, for people in your family, or for yourself during this series. There may be things here you think, boy, I could learn about this or grow in this area. So it's great that that you do as much work as the preacher in preparing your hearts for Sunday. So we'll be in Genesis 25, picking up verse 19. And why don't I pray for us um, as we turn to our passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. And we thank you for Jesus, Jacob's heir according to the flesh. We pray now as we look at this complex man, this patriarch, that you would teach us. And then by your spirit, you would change us. And we pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Imagine you are living in the early Iron Age, so 12th, 13th century BC. You're young. You are part of a nomadic people, a tribe that call themselves Israel. And your people are encamped east of the River Jordan in the plains of Moab. And your leader, a man named Moses, aged and worn by his own battles with Pharaoh and years in the wilderness, you're beginning to realize that your leader is preparing the people for taking this land across the Jordan. It's called Cana, and you've been told that it was promised to your people by God. And Moses, one day, with all the people gathered, and you, you can feel the, the air of seriousness, Moses gets up and he begins to speak. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out that he may confirm the word that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And you turn to your parents, who themselves are aging. They too have been part of the generation that lived through the 40 years in the wilderness. And you turn to them and you say, who's Jacob? Who's Jacob? And they begin to tell you his story. He's a complex man. But he's the man 
who God finally wrestled into order and then changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Therefore, you and your brothers and sisters, you bear his name. You need to know who this man is. Moses wrote down these early books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch, the first five books. The first one is Genesis. Moses wrote these books down at this moment. It's so important we feel that when we read Genesis. Moses has seen a generation dying out and he's preparing the next generation to take the land. They are afraid. They've had their peers tell them, you can't do this. They're giants. They will crush you. They really are outmatched and they're dwarfed by this. And so Moses needs to prepare this next generation to go in and do something impossible. And so what he does is he writes down all the stories of the people of God, beginning here with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Israelites, in reading these, are to not only learn about their own ancestry, about who they are, more importantly, they're to learn something about their God and what it means to be the people that live with the call of God upon their life. I wonder if you were giving instructions to your adult child right before they entered into a huge new season. So maybe they're entering into a career Maybe they're going off to college. Maybe they're getting married. Maybe they're about to have their first child. And you know, because you've lived a little bit, you know that, that though this land they're entering has many blessings, there will be trials and temptations that they couldn't possibly anticipate. What would you tell them to prepare them? What advice would you give? Where would you want their confidence in their sense of calling to this to finally rest? Remember, son, you can always trust yourself. Remember the family from which you come. Do what we always do. What, what would you tell them? You see, th this, is, this is how the life of Jacob, which we're going to study this winter, this is how it's meant to function. It's meant to present to the Israelites the key lessons and knowledge they need if they are going to face the impossible and ultimately have confidence. It's meant to give them a backbone. And so too with us. These, these lives that we look at in these early portions of the Bible, they're meant for our instruction, our correction, our reproof, our training in righteousness. So, so as a church, as we, as we turn to the life of Jacob, it's recorded in Genesis 25 through 35, kind of right in the heart of the book. We're going to prayerfully ask, Lord, what would you want us to know about ourselves, about you, and what it means to be the people who live under the calling of Yahweh? What does that feel like? And what does it mean for how we go forward into whatever it is you may be calling us into? So the story of Jacob is not a romantic tale. It's not simplistic moralism. It's raw, it's dark, it's brutally honest. It bears witness to what it's like to come under the call of God. And so we begin our study today where Jacob's story begins with the account of his birth and his early years. We find out he's a twin. He has a brother named Esau. So in Genesis 25, verse 19 through 35, we meet his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. We hear about the pregnancy. 
not a simple pregnancy, the birth and an episode about stew where Jacob manipulates his brother to get his birthright. This is the opening scene. And as we go through it, I just want to focus on a single theme. There are many themes in this scene, but I want to focus on what I think is the most important. And it's the theme of election. Election. The call of God on Jacob's life and what it means to live under the grip of that. And to see this, I'm going to just organize our thoughts under two headings. First, I want us to see that the electing power of God, the call of God by which he chooses someone, that the call of God, one, sets us free, free from the tyranny of other powers, and two, that the call of God sets us in fire, a fire that refines, that will not stop until all the dross is burnt away. So sets us free, sets us in fire. The first point is 80% of the sermon. So when 25 minutes from now I pivot to the second point, don't get nervous. <laughs> the second point is quicken by way of application. So first, the call of God and how it sets us free and how we see it in the birth of Jacob and Esau. So our passage begins at verse 19. Let me just pick up and read for us. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? The, the scene here, the language is intense. You, you could also say the children clashed within her, and, and she seems to be at a loss. The Hebrew literally seems to say, she goes, if this is so, why? And it just breaks off. And she goes to inquire of the Lord. Maybe she goes to Abraham, and she asks, what's happening? The Lord responds in verse 23, and this is what I want to focus on first, and his response does not at all seem like a word of comfort at first. He responds with a prophecy that casts God's plans before her for generations to come. Verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So with no explanation as to why, God simply asserts the destiny of the boys in her womb. Esau, the older, will serve Jacob, the younger. And not only that, God asserts the destiny of two nations, Israel and Edom. Now in this pronouncement, God is making known his election or his calling. Who he is setting apart and placing his hand on uniquely to bring about his purposes. And when Paul comments on this passage, I mean, it's really neat. You can turn to Romans 9 when you get home and you can read Paul's own commentary on this. When Paul comments on this scene, it is to this idea of election or calling that he focuses. So Romans 9, picking up at verse 10. Here's Paul's 
opinion about the passage. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. I want to point something out here. You may not have heard this, but Paul brings up election, God's purposes of election. And then he uses the word call, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So just so you know, election means to be called. The word literally means called out. So in the Bible, you'll see election and calling used as synonyms. So a deeper way to understand election is simply the calling of God piercing into someone's heart and gripping them. And you see this theme across the Bible. God calls individuals, Jeremiah, the prophet, Jeremiah 1.5. The Lord says, before you were born, I consecrated you. So too, St. Paul, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, the, these writers, these Persons are showing us this theme of being called before you are even born. It appears not just with individuals, it appears for entire nations or groups. So Israel, for example, Deuteronomy 7, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people as his treasured possession. Jesus says of his people, his church, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This theme, the election or calling of God, it, it's something like a backbone for the people of God. Because you see, it says this. It says, this wasn't your idea. You didn't choose God, he chose you. And this will become decisive for knowing that at the root, the real power underneath your identity and your purpose and your hope is not your ingenuity, it's the electing, sovereign, inscrutable wisdom of God that has said, you are mine and I am choosing you and calling you. If you lift up the people of God, election and calling is like the I-beam. It's absolutely essential for their identity. So what should we make of this theme coming up in Jacob's life before he's born. He hasn't done anything yet. And the Lord just says, the older will serve the younger, meaning Jacob. It's Jacob I'm going to choose. What should we make of this? I think what I want us to see is that this is actually good news. And it's actually, as I'll show you, very freeing. But that's not often how I think this teaching initially strikes our ears. I think it's, at least for a lot of people, and certainly for people Paul was writing to, this idea that God chooses some and not others, and he chooses us before we choose him, I think it feels honestly insulting to American sensibilities. It feels unfair. It feels random. It feels unjust. So let me just consider whether or not this is unjust and whether or not it's a violation of our freedom, this election of God. Now, Paul knew about the critique, this is unjust. He brings it up when he goes on in his own commentary on this in Romans 9. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there? 
The call of God is not unjust, properly understood. It is profoundly merciful. If we allow the Bible to frame our view of things rather than our sensibility or our cultural milieu, we see that it is actually humankind that has been rejecting God, not God who has been rejecting human beings. And this is the case from the very outset of the Bible. God lovingly creates us in his own image. And he creates a world for us. I mean, if you've ever watched planet Earth, he creates an amazing habitat that we can call home just for us. And he makes it in a way that he can have a relationship from us. And from the get-go, right out of the gate, we reject him. Adam rejects him. Cain rejects him. By the time of the flood in Genesis 6, the whole race is rejecting him. He's merciful. He saves them through Noah. Noah comes out on the other side. Noah falters and fails. We get to the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. Once again, the people are gathering to reject God. And then we have Esau who seems like he's maybe suffering from an injustice for not being chosen. But do you see what Esau does in this scene? Do you know what it means when Esau despises his birthright, verse 34? Do you know it's his rejection of God? This is what the birthright meant. Abraham is Jacob and Esau's grandfather. Abraham lives into the 15th year of the boy's lives. Abraham would have surely explained to them the history of their family. I was called by God out of nowhere in Mesopotamia in a land of other gods. He called me to go and he said, I will put my blessing on you. I will make you fruitful. You will have land. You will be many. Kings will come from you. And through you, Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. He would have told Esau about the birth of his father Isaac, how he and Sarah waited 25 years and finally Isaac came, the child of promise. He would have told him about the trip up Mount Moriah with Isaac where God provided the, the lamb and coming back down. He would have said, you know, Isaac, as the eldest, do you understand what God is putting, what he's giving you to carry? And so when, when Esau, through this interaction over a bowl of soup with his brother, when he comes in famished, and he pathetically says, what good is a birthright to me right now? Meaning, that's in the future. It does me no good. I don't even think it's going to happen. And he prizes immediate gratification. And then there is this harrowing comment in its brevity in verse 34. The last, the last verse in our passage. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He said, I don't care about this blessing from Yahweh. What is it to me? I'm hungry. So what you see with election is not a God who is flicking saints off his raft so they drown in the ocean. It's a God who is mercifully reaching into an ocean of lostness and rebellion and sin and rescuing people who have no merit of their own Election, God's call, it's the first breaking in of the light of mercy into a dark world. And this is exactly how Paul goes on to explain it. It is an, an arrival of mercy. Paul says, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God doesn't reject anyone who's coming to him as a saint. What God does do is reach mercifully into the world and grab people one by one who are fleeing from him. And friends, God is utterly free to reach down and save whatever undeserving sinner he so chooses. Utterly free. And so he reaches down and he puts his hand on the forehead of Jacob. And he says, mine. That's the first thing we see. That the election of God, the call of God, it's not about being injustice. It's about mercy. But a second question that can come up from people is to say, well, that's great. I mean, who wouldn't like a little mercy? But it feels limiting to me to say that I didn't get to choose my religion, but God chose me. I mean, would you like someone to choose your politics for you? I mean, we're grown-ups, right? We can think. You took a religion class in college. Read about it online. Watch a few videos on Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, atheism. You ought to be able to choose, right? You're smart. Isn't that what happens with Jacob? He comes of age. He studies the gods of Mesopotamia. looks at the Canaanite religions and he decides, you know what? I'm going to go with Yahweh. And Yahweh goes, thank goodness, man. I've been waiting for somebody to choose me. That's just not what we see. But the question is, does this limit your freedom to think that God chooses you before you're born? I want to suggest absolutely not. But in fact, this is the only thing that gives you any semblance of freedom. And to see this, we need to take a fresh look at what we think is free will. Are we so free? You know, it's interesting right now that the, the attacks on free will actually aren't really coming from the religious quarter, but the scientific quarter. And there is, um, and I just think this is super interesting. I mean, those who are neurobiologists, who, who, who study kind of the, the impact that a culture or society has on a person are just noticing that there's a lot of determinism that goes on in deciding who we become. So a book just came out in 2023 um, by a Stanford neurologist named Robert Sapolsky. He, it's getting a lot of attention. Everybody's reviewing it. And here's the title, Determined. A science of life without free will. Here's what he says. You cannot decide all the sensory stimuli in your environment. Your hormone levels this morning, whether something traumatic happened to you in the past, the socioeconomic status of your parents, your fetal environment, your genes, whether your ancestors were farmers or herders. We are nothing more or less than the cumulative biological and environmental luck over which we had no control that has brought us to any moment. He takes 500 pages to argue that in his view, we have absolutely no free will. And what he's simply saying is that behind every choice is a cause and behind every cause is a cause. So it's not so simple to say, what do I will to do? He's saying, why do you will what you will? So for example, you walk into an ice cream shop, there's 50 flavors, and you say, I've got all the free will to choose what I want, and I get to choose my favorite, pistachio. Fair enough. 
but why do you want pistachio? See, the question isn't what do you want, it's why do you want what you want? What's upstream forming the fact that you like pistachio over something else? And if you keep tracing this all the way down, this scientist is simply asking that we are far more determined than we realize. And your social environment, who your parents are, the experiences you may have had in childhood that aren't your fault, but they happened to you and they've messed you up. And so you see, I think this author goes too far, but do you see, it's raising this interesting question. If you're just following your own so-called will, are you really free? Are you really free to carve out the best path for yourself? Do you even know what it is? And here's what's interesting is that this guy's thesis has a lot in common with things we see in the Bible and different. The Bible doesn't present us as beings without a will. We're created with a free will. You see this in Genesis 1. We have the ability to choose God. We're we're meant to love him and serve him. But after the fall happens, when you walk across uh, Scripture, something very different is going on. And we see people who are darkened in their minds, hardened in their hearts, and enslaved to sin. Jesus says, not that you're free, but that if you sin, you are a slave to sin, meaning you're not able to not do it, which is what Paul says in Romans 7. That which I do not want to do, I go on doing. Who will save me from this body of death, wretched man that I am? And so you see, the the, the picture we see, I think when we're more honest, is not one where we would want to be overconfident in our own choosing. But man, we would hope that somebody would come along and give us good guidance. Don't you feel that when you ask people for advice? Man, I wish you could just tell me the right decision. Tell me where to go to school. Tell me what to do. We're desperate to know that there's a voice outside of our own that knows Friends, this is what it means to say that the call of God liberates us. It sets us free because here's what happens. When the call of God comes into Jacob's life, we see the warring of different powers, right? As we watch him unfold over the next few weeks, he's a sinful man. He's born grasping. He doesn't have a perfected nature. And yet there now is a power at work in him stronger than himself. We'll see that he's not part of a perfect culture. There's certain systems that just because he wasn't born first, he wouldn't get the blessing. And we'll see God consistently through scripture topple the the privilege that would determine the outcome for people's lives. God chooses Israel, not because they're strong, because they're weak. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he said, brothers, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards, but you were foolish. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. And you begin to see, and let me just try to sum up what I'm saying here. The election of God, the call of God sets us free for three reasons. Number one, it frees us from the tyranny of systems of privilege. God chooses the younger. He chooses the weak. He chooses the lowly. And without that call, they would have no shot. It frees us from the bondage of performance because we see that Jacob doesn't have to earn the call of God. He never could. I mean, some of you may think you just have to be good enough. If you don't sin for the next 10 days, God will call you. That's not how it works. You cannot perform your way to get it. 
God sets his love on Israel just because he does. It frees us from privilege. It frees us from performance. And finally, it frees us from this thing called determinism. You don't just have to be under the fate of your genes or your family of origin or what's happened to you or the culture you're in or the mistakes you've made or worse, the sin that has a tyranny over you and without the call of God, make no mistake, it will damn you. The call of God can free you from that and death. Walter Brueggemann has a wonderful commentary on Genesis and he, he captures this complexity of being called by God, meaning some options are closed, right? You can't go outside the calling, but yet what it means, here's what he says of this call on Jacob. It affirms the call of God that we do not live in a world where all possibilities are kept open and we may choose our posture as we please. It does not deny freedom, but it requires us to speak also about destiny, about the working of this capitalized other one, God, who will have a voice in our future. There are some options that are closed and some choices denied the people of God. Jacob has some freedom. He could stay or go. He could fear. He could care. But all his freedom is bounded by the choices God has already made on his behalf. I like to think of the image if you're called by God of kind of your, your warring nature and you're kind of like left to its own devices. I don't know what I'm going to grow into. And then you got a world you can't control. You got drunk drivers, you got politicians, you just can't control anything. And I like to think of the call of God like God placing a seed inside of you. And it's of a different nature than your sin nature, than the world around you. And it's stronger. And no matter what, it will grow up and push you and form you into the shape God wants you to be. Just like you can picture a big tree growing through a driveway, breaking up the pavement. It's like the will of God will make Jacob Israel. Despite Jacob. That's why, that's why the call of God, unlike anything else, can set us free. So let me just pause and ask you, do you live your life under a call? What I mean is, are you aiming at something? Are you living for something? And, and what is it? Is it maybe it's your own voice? I, I look within, I decide what I want, and I become that. You think that's strong enough to bear you in when you go to, when you go to, take, when you go to take the land? Or maybe it's a cacophony of voices around you. Maybe it's your mom and dad. What the life of Jacob tells us is that there is nothing like the call of God to give you a backbone and confidence wherever you may go. It also cautions us. I think the fact that one brother's chosen and one brother's not reminds me of the thief on the cross, the two thieves. Remember, there's two. One man turns and recognizes Jesus and the other doesn't. Because one sees him, it gives us all hope. Because one doesn't, it protects us from any presumption. We need to take seriously if we have seen the Lord. So friend, if you're here today, if you're in church today and you're, you may be wondering if you're called, maybe this is the first time you've heard of this, you're, you're not really familiar with Christianity, quite frankly, you don't really like it and you're, you're wondering, I mean, at least wonder, just, just give me that, just wonder, are you called by God? How would you know? Let me suggest this. The fact that you are hearing this and you're in this church, when you think about 8 billion people on the planet, most of whom are not in church right now, 
The fact that you are hearing this suggests very strongly that it may be that God is calling you. And so hear the voice, hear the voice of Jacob's son, Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And remember the words from Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It may be that he's placing his hand on you. That's point one. (laughs) We're going to close with point two. I told you it's not as long. The call of God frees us, but the call of God also sets us in a fire a fire that refines. And this is meant for all of you, all of us who know God has called us and we have to wrestle with what that experience is like. And I'm gonna suggest it's like being put in fire. And I see this, you will see this if you just consider Rebecca and Isaac at the beginning of this story. Now look, Rebecca and Isaac are the perfect couple, okay? Um, Isaac's the chosen son. Think of everything he's been through with Abraham. He literally is the blessing. He's a miracle. And in Genesis 24, Abraham says to his servant, go up to my hometown in Mesopotamia and find a wife for my son. I don't want him to marry a Canaanite. They believe in a false religion. Servant goes up. He sees Rebecca. It's an unbelievable story. Rebecca then goes back to her family, Nahor and Laban, chooses to come down. She's coming down with the servant. She comes through a field. Isaac is out in the field meditating. He sees her. It's love at first sight. He takes her into his mother's tent. They get married. I mean, if there should be any couple that has the blessing of God on them, it's Isaac and Rebecca. And after everything Abraham and Sarah went through, you would think that the children would just roll out. But notice, notice, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, verse 21, because she was barren. You can be the perfect couple in the perfect will of God and barren. And then it goes on. And unless you're paying attention, you don't realize down in verse 26, after the brother's born, there's this subtle comment. The, the, The writer Moses just throws it in. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Why does that matter? Well, because in verse 20, he was 40 when he started to pray for her. 20 years. This is the perfect couple. They have the blessing of God on their life. Do you know how hard it is to wait 20 years for something? Do you know what that'd be like for a woman in the ancient world, 20 years? And then look how difficult the pregnancy is. It's not like a joyful pregnancy. It's painful physically. And then emotionally, God says, by the way, your sons are set dead against each other. Conflict is in your womb. So what are they to make of this? When you follow the life of Jacob, who himself is exiled for 20 years, then Joseph, who's sold by his brothers, put in prison, then Israel, who's 40 years in the wilderness, and then you hear the saints, the martyrs in the book of Revelation screaming out to God, how long, O Lord, how long? And you hear the psalmist, you gotta realize that there aren't just two realities to life, death and taxes. If you're following God, there's a third waiting. He does not have any problem making his chosen people wait or putting them through trial. 
And at least one reason must be that every generation has to relearn the faith of their forefathers. And they can't just know it in their head. They have to live it with their lives. And this seems to be the only way that they can be transformed. Two implications to leave you with. Implication one of this. If you know you've been called by God and you've made a big decision in your life, marriage, a vocation, where to live, a business venture, and at the time of decision, you knew this was of God, You prayed, you spoke to people, you knew. You could feel it and you step into it. And as the years go by, it proves disastrously difficult, brutal, harder than you could ever have imagined. You're gonna be tempted to think, I must have made a mistake back then. Rebecca's thinking, maybe I shouldn't have come back down here to marry Isaac. Isaac's thinking, maybe the servant got the wrong girl. No. Friends, suffering and waiting is no sign that you are outside the will of God. In fact, more likely it's a sign you're exactly where you're supposed to be. So fear not when it's hard and know that your God is doing something in you that is profound and good. Second implication, know that God, when he calls you, will bring about his purposes no matter what. It seems to me that God likes to let people wait so that the natural resources come to empty. So that Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob, Joseph, everyone knows that this thing is from God, not you. But he brings it to pass. This is the confidence Moses wanted Israel to have. Jacob. Israel, his hand is on you. He will bring to pass that which he has promised. Even despite your failings, despite Jacob's errors, his waywardness, his immaturity, despite himself, God will bring about his purposes. So dear brothers and sisters who are called by God, take heart, pray like your great ancestor Isaac Go seek the Lord like your great ancestor, Rebecca. But more than anything, never forget that you are called, you are chosen by God. Heavenly Father, I pray that those whom you have chosen who do not yet know it would know it. And those who you have called would feel the love that runs through that calling and the power that is beneath, beside, and within them. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.